when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we're going to be analysing the Panama Papers and their political impact in Britain, and whether young people are going to swing a Brexit vote. To discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Joe Morn, a QC and tax specialist, Suzanne Evans, UKIP's parliamentary spokesperson, Marcus Roberts from the Post of YouGov, and from the FT, our political editor George Parker, and our political correspondent Henry Mans. Thank you all for joining. So let us begin with the Panama Papers and the political impact of being tax efficient. A huge database relating to offshore tax shelters in the sunny climates of Panama has been leaked through the papers this week, which has rapidly become a very political story. The Icelandic PM has resigned over his involvement in the Panama Papers. Fingers have been pointing at Vladimir Putin. And David Cameron has come under a lot of pressure over his father's involvement in an offshore investment fund. So, Joe, I'm going to begin with you. A lot of people have been throwing around terms this week that they probably don't fully understand from tax evasion, tax avoidance, offshore, shelters, dodging, whatever you want. To someone who actually understands this, how much of this is really revealing in the Panama Papers? And is there anything legally dubious about what we've seen? What's really, really interesting about this story to me is the fact that it is out of Panama. If you are a UK resident taxpayer, there is no obvious good reason for you to travel halfway around the world to a jurisdiction that isn't English-speaking, that doesn't use English law, that isn't populated by English expatriates by and large, but that offers extraordinary levels of secrecy, opacity, that doesn't have a very good record so far as the OECD is concerned, and is really a standout bad boy amongst tax havens. What that tells me is that if you are citing assets in Panama, there's probably a reason for it, and it's likely to be a very bad one. So one of the things in the papers was this big finger pointing at Vladimir Putin and his um, celloist friend, I believe, who's been very much involved in this. Is there some kind of big global dodgy network? Because this confirms people's all suspicions that, you know, the mega global elites are running the world and screwing the ordinary person. Well, we tend to be dominated in our thinking at the moment by considerations of tax dodging, evasion or avoidance. What these papers show is that havens can be used for a whole variety of reasons, uh, none of them good. So tax evadent, evasion, tax avoidance, obscuring ownership of assets that um, public figures have stolen from their countries, obscuring conflicts of interest, hiding assets from spouses and creditors, a whole host of other reasons too, all of which, in the eyes of the wrongdoer, are best kept out of the public eye. So we'll come back to um, come out of this moment, but George Parker, how significant do you think revelations are, and how much water is David Cameron really in? You know, he's handled this whole thing, I think, pretty badly. Well, he's handled it appallingly, and you know, this story broke on Sunday night. The Guardian was coming out on the Monday morning, 
And really, David Cameron should have sat down on Sunday night with his media advisors and thought, how are we going to play this? And the answer should have been, we need to get all the facts out there straight away. We need to be upfront, get it all out of the way. And frankly, he could have had a reasonably... I mean, he would have taken some criticism in the press, but he could have made the case, look, my dad worked in this world, I understand it, and that's why I've been leading the global charge for more transparency and tax havens. And by the way, the fund I was invested in wasn't a tax avoidance vehicle. It was there because Britain lifted its exchange controls in 1979 and I wanted to invest in dollar-denominated securities or whatever, whatever it was. Instead of which, it dragged on for five days. There was a drip feed of half denials, evasions, circumlocutions, everything else. And in the end, by Thursday, funny enough, just as the story was running out of steam, he then injected new energy into it by coming out and admitting he'd um, had funds in Blairmore, the, the trust set funds, the fund set up by his late father, Ian Cameron. So how much damage has it done him? Well, I mean, the problem is it's not going to come as any surprise to people that David Cameron is rich. And in fact, lots of people will have assumed probably that, you know, he's had trust funds and funds offshore and all the rest of it. He went to Eastern after all in the Bullingdon Club. I don't think the idea of him being rich is particularly new to anyone unless he lived in a cave for the last 20 years. I think the issue is about trust and about whether he was upfront and honest about what he'd been doing. And I think the problem is that, you know, the fact he was asked these questions for five days and didn't answer them fully suggests he probably wasn't. Because this is the latest in a series of gaffes, as you could kindly put it, from Downing Street. If we go from Tata Steel, that which they missed, Ian Duncan Smith's disgruntlement over the benefits cut, which they missed. Then you've had everything coming back to the EU referendum. How much of this is about Downing Street being focused on keeping the party together and the upcoming vote in June without these sort of almost domestic matters that are proving a lot more damaging. Well, I think that's a really good point. You know, people talk about the government being on autopilot between now and the, the referendum date on June the 23rd. And people in Downing Street, you hear them say that Europe is the only game in town. Now, if, if it's the only game in town, you tend to take your eye off all the other games in town. And as you mentioned, the Tata Steel thing and this one. I think this is particularly interesting. I think this is slightly different because... I think there were a couple of things going on at the beginning of the week why they didn't nail this story initially. The first one was I think it was a bit caught up with the fact that it was a fund set up by David Cameron's beloved father and he didn't really want what his father had been done dragged into the public domain. I can understand all that. I think the more significant point was that nobody in Downing Street really understood what Blairmore was. And Joe might be able to help us with this because it was only a few days later that Downing Street started to say, well, hang on a sec, actually maybe this fund that David Cameron was invested in wasn't a tax avoidance vehicle after all. Maybe it was legit. And they started pointing journalists in the direction of tax lawyers, maybe not Joe, who were prepared to say it wasn't a tax avoidance vehicle. It was something that was set up along with lots of other trust funds back in the early 1980s after exchange controls were lifted in the UK. Yes. So on that point, Joe, can you explain to us what Blairmore is, was, and whether there's anything dubious about it. Absolutely. There's an awful lot of confusion. And the point that George was making just a second ago about that confusion doesn't just extend to media commentators at large. Yesterday, in his ITV interview with Robert Peston, David Cameron started off by talking about this thing as a unit trust. Later in the interview, he started referring to it as an investment trust, very, very different vehicles with, as I understand it, different consequences for their registrability on the register of members' interests. And I think that that has precipitated complaint just to add to the whole list of domestic problems that David Cameron is facing. There are aspects of this transaction which are bad. There are aspects of this transaction which are good. And there are aspects of this transaction that have been mishandled. So the bad one 
is the fact that bearer shares were issued. Bearer shares are an invitation to those who want to evade tax to evade tax. Of course, not everyone who holds bearer shares takes that invitation up, but there is no good use for a bearer share, and that's why they were banned. And so you have to ask the question, why was Ian Cameron setting up funds using bearer shares? I've not heard anyone come up with a a reasonable response to that question. So that's the bad aspect. The good aspect of this is that if you have a fund offshore of this nature and you're a UK taxpayer, the fact that it is based offshore generates no tax advantage to you, the UK taxpayer. So that's what David Cameron's supporters have been out saying in force over the last day or two, and I think they're perfectly right to say that. The error here has come in the fact that David Cameron himself appears not to understand the transactions that have been entered into by him and by his father. So he said very categorically yesterday in the interview that Blair Moore had not been set up to avoid UK tax. And that is simply untrue. If you look at the prospectus for the fund, it says very clearly it is set up to avoid UK tax. What, no doubt, David Cameron meant to say was that for a UK taxpayer, setting the fund up offshore would not lead to any advantage for that UK taxpayer. But at fund level, it is clearly avoiding UK tax. And then, of course, George, the thing is, the reason this has picked up a lot of traction, that for David Cameron's political opponents, it confirms all their their worst fears about him, that he comes from a very wealthy background, he's out of touch, he doesn't understand the cause of ordinary people, particularly in times of austerity, that we still live in. Long term, after this, you know, the story will eventually die down. It might come up in the Commons next week. You can maybe tell us something a little bit about that. But long term, after the EU referendum, there's not really that much that's changed about David Cameron, or do you think there's a danger that it really does, it's a fatal knock to him? I don't think it's a fatal knock to him, and I think the idea that David Cameron should resign over this issue, which is a point that Tom Watson, the Labour deputy leader, raised, is... Well, Ken, pre- Ken Livingstone, the, uh, the, London mayor, the former London mayor, said he should not only resign, but he should probably be in prison. <laughs> I mean, these are preposterous claims. David Cameron isn't going to resign. You're right that this will come up in the House of Commons next week, and David Cameron will be called to, possibly by an urgent question by the, called by the Speaker to explain what's been going on. And we expect David Cameron soon to publish his tax return. But I don't think he's fatally damaged by this. You know, as I was saying earlier, nobody it will come as no surprise to anyone that David Cameron, it comes from a very privileged and wealthy background. And the idea of his father running offshore funds is not a new one. The other thing I'd say is that people's political memories are fairly short. And the third thing I'd say is that I was speaking to Peter Bone today, who's leading one of the Brexit campaigns who said he'd been knocking on doors all week and not a single person had mentioned the Panama Papers or tax avoidance. They were incidentally very angry about the fact the government was spending £9 million on a leaflet propounding the supposed facts around Britain's advantages of staying, the advantage of Britain of staying in the European Union. But they're not upset about this. So I don't know, in the middle of one of these media maelstroms, it's very easy to say this will be fatal to David Cameron. I suspect in a month's time, when people are starting to focus very much on the referendum, this might be seen as a bit of a footnote. And finally on that, Joe, I think this is the point George made mention this earlier, that the Prime Minister has taken a stance on this before, and we've seen various, you know, GHG20s, what have you. They've all said, we're going to tackle this, we're going to, this is not going to happen, this is intolerable. We saw similar language from President Obama this week. 
Do you think anything will actually change as a result of the Panama Papers? Could you see David Cameron riding forward after the referendum, obviously after an in-vote and he's remained in position and leading some kind of charge on this, or will it just be business as usual? Well, if you're me and you're interested in us having a, a better tax system and you're doing a lot of writing to try and bring that about, you know, it's good to hear a very senior politician like David Cameron say that there is a moral quality attached to some of these actions. I mean, it's blindingly obvious to me, but it's very, very helpful that he says it. It is then very, very unfortunate that that is held against him. And there have been one or two instances of his conduct just not matching up to his language. And perhaps there are explanations for it that haven't yet come out. But I think that is the rod with which he has been beaten. And now on to Brexit and the youth vote. Are young people going to be key in the outcome of June's EU referendum? Young people are much more likely to vote for Britain to stay in the EU, but they are also far less likely to get off their bums and actually vote. So combined with the Glastonbury Music Festival the day after voting, there are big concerns in pro-EU circles. The youth could lose in the referendum. So Henry, in the FT this week, you've examined the role of young voters in the campaign in various ways to energise them. How important do you think this is going to be? I think one of the first things to say is that this is a way of changing the tone of the referendum campaign. It's been pretty dreary stuff about counterclaims and facts about EU membership. And here's a way of politicians saying, look, it's all about the future. It's all about young people. It's all about shiny, fresh faces behind me as I deliver an address to an audience. Um, young people are really pro-European. I mean, up to three quarters of those under 30 seem to be in favour of EU membership. The problem is they don't vote. Less than half voted in last year's general election. Around the same amount say they're, they're certain to vote this time. So if politicians who are in favour of the EU membership can get that vote out, they don't really have to persuade. They just have to get these people registered and get them to the polling station. There are free votes almost there to be had. Um, Marcus Roberts, does your research from YouGov tally with what Henry's just been saying there? And how important is this going to be? Absolutely. I think Henry's spot on. We know that the people who are most likely to vote remain, uh, voters aged between 18 and 57, are the least likely to vote in this referendum. It is very clear that the Remain campaign have a big problem when it comes to motivating heavy supporters for them, particularly amongst young voters. Now, if you look at how that contrasts with pensioners, voters aged over 60, you see a strong likelihood to vote at around about 80% or even higher. If you look at that same effect in terms of young voters, it can fall to under 25s to as little as one in three. This is absolutely astonishing and a huge problem for Remain if it's going to win this election, which this referendum, which is going to come down to turnouts amongst different age groups. So, Suzanne Evans, this all sounds like quite good news for your side that older people are more likely to vote, they're more likely to vote Brexit. You've been up and down the country speaking at town halls and events and debates and uh, on TV programmes. What's your sense of the age here? Is what you're seeing backing up what Marx's numbers say? Yeah, I think what Mark says, I certainly meet older people who are much more heavily in favour of Brexit. And I just look back, for instance, to the debates I have done and also the hustings I did at the general election. I went to an older people's forum to speak. Almost everybody in the room was 100% behind every word I said, practically. Whereas you go to a student union debate and it's a very, very different feel. But I think what Henry said is very interesting. Henry, you said young people are much more pro-European. Well, I'm very pro-European. 
you know, the EU is not Europe, but I think what's happened is young people have grown up in a situation where they confuse Europe, the continent, with EU, the political union. And, and it is a sort of very subtle sort of propaganda. We know that there are what are called Monet professors operating in universities who are backed and funded by the European Union. There are increasing numbers of those. The EU is very clever. It knows it doesn't have responsibility for education in its member states, but my goodness, it gets its fingers into education and tries to influence it by using its weight and its power and most specifically our taxpayers' money. So I suppose the question is, if you're all going to be reliant on sort of older people who are going to turn out and vote then, does that question the legitimacy of the outcome somewhat? Because, you know, a lot of, you know, David Cameron has said this referendum is about the future of the country and this is about the next generation. But if you're entirely reliant on an older generation who, you know, it's back to William Hague at the 1977 um, Conservative Conference, you lot won't be here in 30 years' time. Does that not make problem with your argument for leaving that it's just disgruntled old people and young people who have to live with the consequences of this don't agree with the outcome? Well, I completely disagree, actually, that young people don't get involved and don't want to vote Brexit. And I've certainly met a lot that do. Uh, we have an organisation, Students for Britain, in this country. You know, they're passionate young people who know the arguments and actually take the time to look into it. And if you look at what's happening within the European Union, you can see that actually it's young people who are suffering. It's young people who are suffering unemployment, particularly across the Eurozone. It's young people who are going to have their potential careers thwarted in the wealthier countries because of the influx of, of mass uncontrolled immigration, which is depressing wages. So I would actually argue that the future for young people looks a lot bleaker if they vote to stay in. In the FT this weekend, we have an interview with Nigel Farage, and he's very keen to impress that across Europe, Eurosceptic movements are very popular amongst young people. So if you look at Spain, if you look at Hungary, if you look at Greece, if you look at Italy, those kind of populist movements, which in many ways resemble uh, Suzanne's party, UKIP, have great support amongst younger voters. And the question really is, is why hasn't UKIP been able to link some of these economic problems that young people are facing to the European Union or to Euroscepticism in general? Because this, this is a point, Marks, because Suzanne obviously mentioned you've got students for Britain. There are younger people, but they're just not in the same numbers as, you know, a lot of, say, you know, young Liberal Democrats or young Labour people who are going to be campaigning for in. That's absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons I think why Remain, especially in the last few weeks, has started putting a lot more resource into its field operations around young voter activation and turnout. What is also telling, though, and this may help explain one of the problems that the Remain campaign has when it comes to appealing to young people, is that the biggest spokesperson that they have for the Remain argument is the Prime Minister. And our latest round of YouGov polling shows that just 24% of under 25s trust anything David Cameron actually says. Now, when your chief spokesperson is your prime minister appealing to young people and young pe three quarters of young people are likely to say, I'm not listening to you, you can see how the problem might arise in the first place. I think that's an interesting point. You know, as much as I disagree with Jeremy Corbyn on an awful lot, I think it's a real shame that he hadn't stuck to his Eurosceptic principles. We know that man doesn't want to stay inside the European Union. It's obviously one of the issues he's decided to sacrifice on the altar of his future success possibly within the, the Labour Party. Issue. Possibly yeah. the only issue, which is a shame because, funnily enough, Jeremy Corbyn, despite being an older man and, and perhaps looking older, actually has the support of a huge amount of young people. But this is a very odd thing, Henry, that Momentum, which is the organisation that boosted Jeremy Corbyn into the Labour leadership, is sitting out the EU referendum. Momentum have basically said... We're not going to campaign in this. They're focused on the London elections, the local elections, the Scottish elections, the Welsh elections. 
it seems very odd for momentum to sort of really sit this one out. Is that because of this difference with the leaders, Jeremy's views, or is it just they're just not interested in it? I think there's always a difficulty for those on the left in this kind of contest where they're basically agreeing with a centre-right prime minister and they don't want to be in that position, they don't want to share a platform. It seems to me that one of the real questions is, is this a, a slight charade, this aim to boost turnout? I mean, basically, there's always great expectation that young people can come out in their droves and vote. It doesn't always happen. And it seems to me that part of what Cameron is trying to do is not necessarily just get young people out to vote, but it's convincing people in their 40s, people who have kids, that voting in favour of Remain is in their kids' interest. Yeah, that's very much the case. One of the big contrasts between this referendum and the Scottish referendum two years ago is the lack of activation amongst young voters. One of the reasons for that is that the franchise hasn't been extended to 16, 17-year-olds, as was the case there. But what's telling is the fact that both the Leave and the Remain campaigns seem to be doing quite retail politics offers, vote for either in or out based upon your narrow self-interest as defined by X, Y, or Z. That stands in stark contrast with the kind of emotional appeals that really seem to work with a lot of young voters in the Scottish referendum. By tapping into forces of patriotism and nationalism, whether it was for the union or for Scottish independence, both the no vote campaign and the yes vote campaign in the Scottish referendum were able to get young voters in larger numbers. Whereas making these very retail, very numbers-based arguments by both Remain and Leave don't seem to be really setting the heather alight amongst young voters at all. I agree, actually. And of course, I think, again, though, for the older generation, that idea of patriotism is a very important one and very much pushes them towards the leave side. I'm not sure young people have that same sense of patriotism. And I think one of the points that we need to make to young people is that the European Union is very insular. It's very protectionist. It's very much a, a tiny part, actually, of the growing global world economy. We're the fifth largest economy in Britain. I would argue to young people, if you really want to open yourself up to the world and not to a shrinking 20th century idea of the European Union, you need to vote to leave. Now, the other thing in your article, Henry, was about Glastonbury, which lands the day after the referendum vote. Now, I actually had a Glastonbury ticket, but I just, I love the EU referendum so much that I've had to give up my Glastonbury ticket here. But it's actually become an interesting thing when David Cameron spoke at a university yesterday. He was questioned by students who said, why have you chosen this date? With Glastonbury and his answer was, well, any date would be a bad date, to be I think, honest. I, think I really felt for uh, Cameron at that moment because the guy is balancing several political priorities. He doesn't want to have the, the referendum after the summer because you're going to have waves of refugees arriving across the Mediterranean all through the summer months. And that would be a very bad backdrop for a referendum for the Remain campaign. And he has a, a student at the University of Exeter put up her hand and say, this is a terrible date. I've got Glastonbury and maybe a graduation ceremony on that day. And he must be thinking, come on, you know. You can organise a postal vote. Glastonbury, you would think their voters would be very, very pro-Remain and it would be a great opportunity for them to get some votes out. It just falls afterwards and they tried to get permission to allow people to vote on site and were refused by the actual commission. You have to vote either by post or by proxy or where your uh, allotted station is. One thing that um, Eurosceptics have done to um, try and energise the vote is this B-pop Live, Suzanne, which has been organised by Grassroots Out, which is a music event in Birmingham, I believe, that's going to be happening. Do you think that's going to be successful in getting young people out and enthused about the referendum? I don't know. I mean, I think it's worth trying anything new. I think the fact is young people in the main are disengaged from politics across the board. 
whether it's the EU referendum, whether it's a general election, local elections, certainly, I don't think young people take much of an interest. So I think there is absolutely an argument for finding new ways to engage people in politics. And I think politicians have a big job of work to do in trying to use anything they can to make that happen. There is a chicken and the egg problem here with young people's voting. Young people tell pollsters like YouGov, we're not going to take part in your election or your referendum. Therefore, campaigns say we're not going to appeal to them. And round and round we go. Because without appealing to them, what's the point of getting involved in the first place? As a result, you probably can argue that there's a responsibility on both sides. There's a responsibility on the Remain and the Leave campaigns to appeal to young voters. And there's a responsibility on the part of young voters to actually get out and vote. And finally, one last thing, which we ask everyone on the FT Politics podcast, where we've not got long to go to the referendum now. What do you think the result is going to be, Marcus? I really wish you wouldn't keep doing this. (laughs) I now think that if we're looking at a Remain victory, we're looking at a much narrower Remain victory than ever before. This is get closing all the time, and there is more momentum on the Leave campaign side. Suzanne? I think there is much more momentum on the Leave campaign side. I think we are the ones that are giving more open and honest facts about what's happening, and I think we can absolutely win it. And Henry? 58% remain. So I think it's the punchiest prediction we've had so far. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.